Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted this week that our guest is the internationally best-selling author Douglas Murray. Douglas, as you might know, a few years ago had a book out called The Strange Death of Europe. It was an international bestseller. It was on the best-selling lists here in the UK for about 20 weeks. It was translated into many languages. Huge success. Uh, he's since then obviously become very well known on the international debating and lecturing circuit as well with such luminaries as Jordan Peterson. His latest book this has just come out is The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity. Um, good to see you Douglas. Very good to be with you Peter. Um, first of all, gender, race and identity. You talk about this as being basically uh, a form of new ideology or a new religion. Yeah. Can you explain a bit about that? Well, I'd noticed in recent years, as I'm sure you and many others have, that almost every day's news was about, or very significantly about, issues of identity. Um, it was people's careers being over because, for instance, they had nicked one of what I recognized to be the tripwires. It was uh, people demanding a new recognition of a particular identity. And, and, and there are others I could have put in, but the four that I realized they were most centered around was everything to do with being gay, everything to do with women, particularly relations between the sexes, everything to do with race, and absolutely everything to do with trans, which is the most recent of these rights uh, claims. Now, I should stress that I think in all of these cases, we live in the most free, most liberal, in the proper sense, societies in the world. Mm -hmm. And to live in this society now is to live not just in the most fortunate society in the world at the moment, but the most fortunate society in the world ever. Mm -hmm. So why was it that all of these things, which have never been better anywhere, ever, should have increasingly been portrayed as if we lived in the most repressive, oppressive, patriarchal, white supremacist societies in the world? Societies which, as a result, needed, if not to be brought down completely, then to be completely changed. And... I started to notice that there were common patterns going on. And, and it, I, I, I stress that this is not to overstate things. What's behind this is the most serious attempt, I think, since the end of the Cold War, to come up with a comprehensive explanation and justification for what we are doing here. Yeah. After all, you know, I, I addressed a bit of this in The Strange Death of Europe, but it's highly unlikely that we are going to be the first people in human history to require no explanation for our presence on Earth and not need anything to do. Mm. Now, my view is that historically we recognise that when the economics goes wrong, other things follow. We know this from the French Revolution. We know this yeah, from every, yeah. every period in history. And we've been very reluctant to recognise that when the financial system went wrong in 2008 something else happened in its wake. Other things start to go wrong in the culture. My view is, as I explain in the book, that in the wake of the financial crisis, it isn't clear, for instance, why young people who can't accumulate capital should have an instinctive love of capitalism. Or to put it another way, 
it's not clear to me that people who don't see any likelihood of ever getting on the property ladder won't find themselves attracted to a system which claims to be able to solve every inequity on earth. Yeah. Yeah. It's got yeah. something to going for it, hasn't it? Yeah. And, and my view, as I explain, is that post-2008, what we see is that there are ideas around, of course there are ideas around all the time, and this idea, the intersectionalism, the identity politics, the weaponization of identity, have been around in this form since at least the 60s, 70s, yeah. been worked on in the 80s at American universities. It's a demonstrable, demonstrable nonsense. I explain, I try to pick it apart in this book. But perhaps when the economics goes wrong, our whole system becomes highly vulnerable to bad ideas. And I think that's one of the things that's been happening. And into the system in the last 10 years has flooded these claims about LGBTQI issues, about women issues, about racial issues. And just in case anyone thinks I'm obsessing about a, you know, a liberal arts college issue on the mm. West Coast mm. of America, mm. I would just say, in a country like Britain or America, the only people who don't think this is coming for them are people who are self-employed. Yes, yeah, yeah. Anyone who works in government, mm -hmm. anyone who works in local authority, anyone who works in uh, private uh, organizations, in public companies, uh, will know that increasingly, issues in our society are not to do with people's competencies. They're to do with their identity issues. Mm, mm. It's whether or not we have the right identity mix. Mm. Now, there's an awful lot going on there, but one of the things I try to show is this is an unwinnable game. Yes. Unwinnable. It, it seems to many people, Douglas, I, I think you've, you've already alluded to it there, but it seems to many people that this has suddenly come. You know, it's, it seems to have suddenly arrived. You mentioned the 2008 financial mm. crisis there. Mm. Um, but it was a long time of brewing. But it, it has been incredibly quick, hasn't it? Yes. Well, as I say, the, uh, the origins of it lie some way back. But it does seem to have flooded through the system. I demonstrate the, the way in which in the last 10 years this goes into the system. And then in the last five years becomes highly weaponized. Yeah, yeah. Highly weaponized obviously particularly in the wake of the Brexit and Trump votes, where, where there's a, an added political utility to weaponizing these things. But yes, I mean, until the last 10 years, things like LGBTQI were not on the agenda, that we, we knew about gay rights. And in the same way, gay rights, women's rights, and equal racial rights for everyone, whatever their skin color, had pretty much arrived, I would submit now, of course, lots of people contest this, but I would submit by the late 20th century and the early part of this century, had arrived at something like their desired destination. And the desired destination was equal. Mm. And as I see it in recent years, this has been like watching a train drawing into a station, the desired destination. And then suddenly, just as it's drawing in, gets ahead of steam, goes shooting off down the tracks, off the tracks, and starts scattering yeah. bodies in its wake. Why, when gay rights have never been better, are they portrayed as if they've never been, never worse? been worse? Why, when women have never been freer and able to make choices about their lives, is everything about the lack of opportunity for women and the 
discrimination that people see against women. Why do we hear talk of the patriarchy at the least plausible time in human history to do such talk? Why do we see the weaponization of gay people against straight people, of women against men, of black people against white people, and trans against absolutely everyone? <laughs> Why? Yeah, yeah. What's actually going on? And I think there's a number of things going on, but one of them one of them is simple brute politics, brutal politics. Perhaps it's a, an image that people don't want in their heads, but trans is the one that gives this thing away. And I think in recent years, the radical left has used transsexuals as a battering ram. Right, yes. A battering ram. Yeah. For what? For several things. One is, and you can see it with complete predictability across the system. Trans is used by people who want to do something else. Mm. I'm not referring to trans individuals who, broadly speaking, want to just live their lives like everyone else. Mm. But I'm talking about the people who you can predict with absolute certainty will agree to whatever the latest claim is. Broadly speaking, they are people who want to wage a conflict on the patriarchal white cis heteronormative capitalist mm. democratic societies mm. that we live in. Actually, that's a, a, an important point because uh, you mentioned the book, you know, that in, in the past when there was a kind of uh, diagram of oppression, mm -hmm. you know, it, capitalism was at the top and then you had, you know, the works or whatever. Now capitalism is still at the top, but you have a different hierarchy of groups yes. that are apparently being oppressed, which is yes. what? I say, I, 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 as you know, I, I do each of these landmine issues one by one, gay, yeah. women, yeah. race, trans, but they have interludes in between them to explain what I think the things going on underneath are. And that's why I have an interlude on the Marxism issue, because you can see the Marxist substrates in a lot of this. I mean, the, as you say, the, the, the pyramid of oppression Capital is still at the top, money, finance. But this time, instead of the, the rest of the pyramid being supported merely by the workers and the working class on whose noble shoulders the, the middle class were, yeah. and then the upper, and then the aristocrats and the bishops and so on, this is another form of the pyramid of oppression. But it involves these minority groups. Now, by the way, lest anyone think that I'm some conspiracy theorist on this, I cite at considerable length some of the Marxist scholars who, who make this completely plain. And I was staggered when I was looking into this at the completely frank way in which some of them write about this. Uh, uh, writers like Lachlan and Mouffe in the 80s are already writing that the working class have basically let us down. Yeah. Remember, yeah. the working class didn't show up for the revolution on time. <laughs> the working class were a big yeah. letdown yeah. if you were a, you know, a communist in, in Britain or America in the 20th century. So in the 80s, when they're still trying to work out why the best they've got to show for their horrible experiment is Yugoslavia or Romania, Albania, they're, they're, they're trying to work out why this has happened and why the working class is such a letdown. And they decide that we've got to get a new form of revolutionary class. And they are completely frank that they want to find it in minority groups. They want to find it in women, and one always has to stress that women are not a minority group, but nevertheless, they're always packaged in with this. 
They want to find it in sexual minorities and they want to find it in racial minorities. Now, there are certain problems in this. and Lachlan Mouffe, among others, stress that there is a problem because the working class is likely to be racist. This is one of the problems that the communists always had. They always had a problem with the working class. <laughs> this is just one of them. The working class will be racist yeah. and they might not like some of our client groups. Well, this is just another contradiction we need to get over. Yeah, yeah. And in this whole business of contradictions, we see part of the Marxist substructure, but we also see one of the things that the rest of us have to address. Because you and I might think that when you have two opposing things trying to go forward at the same time, one of them's got to give. That the contradiction, that contradiction means one of them is wrong. Yeah. But one of the things that the Marxists always managed to do was to embrace the contradictions. So I show with the intersectionalists, I show in somewhat gruesome detail, I think, in The Madness of Crowds, that Intersectionalism claims that if you unlock one minority group, you unlock the lot. Yeah. So we live in a society that's patriarchal, white mm. supremacist, cis-heteronormative, etc., etc. It goes without saying. But these things are all interlocked. And if you could undo one, you would undo the whole thing. Now, I point out this is demonstrably wrong. Mm. Demonstrably wrong. For instance, trans runs against women, mm -hmm. fundamentally. It happens to also run against men, but let's put that one off for another time. It runs fundamentally against women because you cannot claim that being a woman is a performative act which you just become if you would like to become, yet being trans is a hardware issue you have no say over. Mm -hmm. You can run one of those programs, you can't run both. I submit, and this has not, I think, previously been focused on enough, trans runs totally against gay. Totally against gay. It fundamentally undermines the central claims of the gay and lesbian liberation movements that have gone, in, gone on over the last half century. So, the intersectionists say, but this will, or if you undo this, never mind the racial one, if you undo these, everything yeah, will come right. Yeah, yeah. And I say, no, since there is such clear and blatant contradictions, why don't you see that one of them has to give? Well, again, the intersectionists, because they're influenced by the Marxists, don't find this a problem like the rest of us would. And they don't think that as a result, maybe you have to re-estimate re the whole thing. The problem is, you see, if, if one, you know, if they allow for one contradiction, then the whole thing falls down, yes. doesn't it? Yes. This is, this is the problem. I mean, you know, for example, with the, the trans issue, which, I mean, you mentioned that this one is, seems to be, the, as you said earlier, a bit of a... Uh, a catalyst in a way, uh, we had Rod Little on the program and he, and he said this is the one that's going to tip people away, if you like, from this agenda in, 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 yes. in, in its claims. Yeah. For example, Douglas, cause you talk to trans people in, in the book, don't you? Mm. And for example, if, if there is a young boy who maybe has got quite feminine traits, he right. might grow up gay, now in an odd way, he would be, oh, well, maybe actually you probably are trans. You should probably yes. be a woman. So in other words, it's yeah. actually quite conservative, yeah. isn't it? It's saying you've got feminine characteristics, so therefore you must be a woman. Absolutely. The tomboy girl yes, exactly. isn't yeah. just a tomboy girl likely to grow up to be a happy heterosexual woman and mother or potentially a happy lesbian. No, the tomboy girl actually is a boy mm -hmm. in hiding, in yeah, waiting, yeah, yeah. who we must then give drugs to. 
and we must then medically experiment on it. We must, for instance, let's not beat around the bush, flay the arm, for instance, in order to create something that approximates a penis. Mm. Now, this is all presented as if this is the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's worth, just for a moment, if I may, focusing on the extraordinary letdown this is by the adults of the children. Because one of the things that happens in childhood is that you try to work out what is the realm of magic and what is the realm of reality. Mm. Um, in your single digits and even into your double digits, you're trying to work out whether the stories are in some way true. Mm. Now, in every single case, you learn that the realm of magic is not true. But imagine if the adult world told you, in some realms it is, and that you may not be able to wave a wand and fly, but if you wave a wand, you could become the opposite sex. Mm. It's quite straightforward, really. You can choose. Mm. You can choose. It's quite easy. People just choose. You could be a boy, this, a girl this way. One of the uh, uh, main advocates of this in the US, who I quote in the book, uh, describes this at one point in a hideous uh, 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 account I give. Says at one point, in reaction to the question of, well, what if people then have transitioned and then they don't want it? She says, well, you can get your breasts put back on again. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are we, Lego? Yes, I know. It's extraordinary. What are we made of? <laughs> But this is the adults lying to children. Yes, yes. And I think that Rod is right that this may be a catalyst issue, despite being a minority of minority issue, because there's several things with it. But just one of them is the parents know this isn't true. And, you know, Robert Conquest always said people are conservative about the things they know about. That's right. Yeah. Parents know about children. Yeah. They know about their children. And so that's the first thing. But the second thing that's just worth highlighting quickly on that is the reason why the trans thing keeps on tripping people up. And I give, I, I, don't, I don't want it to sound like I'm being, I, I try in this chapter to think as carefully as possible through the various claims being made about trans from intersex all the way through the autogynephilic impulse, the sexual impulse, yeah, the yeah. desire to perhaps get off on this, all the way through to, I am in the wrong body. Mm -hmm. And I try to weigh up the plausible things this because people aren't doing this enough yeah, in our society. Yeah. They don't dare. Yeah. But why is it the one that keeps tripping people up? Because among other things, and I realize this from academics and from scientists I've been speaking to in recent years, because this is the first time, like the realm of magic, that the scientific world has been invited to lie mm. en masse. Pretend that chromosomes are performative, mm. that they don't really exist. Pretend the sciences are wrong and the social sciences are right. I think the thing, Douglas, as well, that, you know, you're talking about how these things have been weaponized, and that seems entirely, entirely correct. But therefore, the idea that somehow this is sincere, that People just want to further the, you know, the, the, the lives of minorities. The social justice warrior kind of argument. Would you say, therefore, that it is not actually sincere? It's all about basically, if you like, having a go at the white patriarchy. My view is that there's different 
different groups going on. There is one, as I say, that is absolutely clear, a political force, a battering ram. These are the people who enter any public discussion with one aim, which is the hope that they can dishonestly misrepresent something somebody else has said as either homophobic, racist, uh, um, sexist, or something else. There are all these tripwires now, aren't yeah. there? All over the place. They've laid them. And by the way, my, my self-appointed task in this book is to say, I want to clear the minefield a yes, bit. Yeah. I want to run into it and set off some of the mines in order that other people can too, because it is not possible in a free society that we cannot talk about all of the things that matter. You have sort of actually, uh, you, you've already run into the mindful since the book's been out, when we've had a couple of great examples that came along mm. just after your book. We, we had the Justin Trudeau, um, oh, yeah. you know, thing, which was fascinating case. actually, yeah. because he is not, you know, he is a social justice warrior, actually, in a way. Yeah, the, so the ultimate social justice warrior. And also we had the thing with Sam Smith. And, 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 and in fact, you, you went on the, was it the, uh, the radio program. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but, and I well, think someone came unstuck there. Didn't yes, uh, well, I said, live, <laughs> I said live on air, which what 99.9% of the population know and would like to say, which is that non-binary doesn't exist. Yeah. It's not a thing, yeah. actually. Yeah. It's, or let me put it another way. If it is a thing, prove it to me. Mm. Show me, tell me. Mm. Don't just order me to change the language. I mean, Sam Smith himself, who made this announcement just in time for the publication of this book, said that, you know, he came out as, he came out as gay four years ago. He came out as genderqueer two years ago. He obviously hadn't had enough attention for a bit. And so he came out as non-binary this year. I just, I don't want to be particularly mean to him. I don't much like his music. I don't much, much like his voice. But so what? What I mind is that he would make a demand of the general public, including call me they, them pronouns, and say in his statement, I don't understand yet what this is, but I look forward to the day when I can talk about it. I look forward to that, to that day too, Sam. Mm. Can't wait. I've got it in the diary. The day when you can come out and tell us all what non-binary is. In the meantime, would you mind if we didn't mutilate the language? And would you mind if we didn't pretend that chromosomes don't exist? And would you, would you mind if, if women didn't have to be told that because you feel a bit feminine today, Sam, that you're a woman that day. Yes, yes. Would you mind awfully? Yeah, yeah. And the point is, everybody knows this. Mm. Outside a few social scientists and a couple of half-paid bloggers at The Guardian, nobody actually follows this. But equally, nobody says it. I could sense it in the Today programme studio when I said it. The presenters were worried. <laughs> I know they, they, they want people to say this. Everyone wants people to say this because yeah, everyone yeah. knows that we're being invited into a lie. And here's... Here's, if I may say so, the, the main thing about that. I don't just mind the lie because I don't like lies. I mind the lie because I think it's profoundly demoralizing to society. Mm, mm, mm. I think it's profoundly demoralizing for everybody. That no matter how prominent you are or how private you are as an individual, that, that you are meant to acquiesce in a little lie. This one's just inviting, it's just being asked by Sam Smith. But the point is that we know that it's demoralizing. And it's demoralizing because the little lie means you'll be asked to agree to a bigger one down the line. Speaking of lies and, and, and evasions, uh, you're very funny in the book at one point, actually. Uh, just one. <laughs> oh, many I'd, times. I'd like to think. Sorry, I'd like to think. But uh, there's, there's one particular point where you <clears throat> talk about where a lot of this originated in sort of colleges in America. You're talking... 60s, mm. 70s, maybe. Yeah. So basically, enough for come through in a couple of generations yeah. to where we are now. But you talk about the 
extraordinary language yeah. that, that was that is used mm. by the followers of Michel Foucault and people, and just basically how it is entirely obscured yes. because there is nothing really being said. Yes, there's a type of language which is uh, being cultivated in, in places like Berkeley University. Yeah. Uh, where you can tell the prose is so execrable that it's clearly designed either not to say anything or to disguise the fact that what it is trying to say is a lie. Mm. Uh, I give a, a quote from... I've Ju got it right here, but it's a very long one. Judith Butler, <laughs> yes. I actually I did the audiobook uh, uh, for the, uh, the Madness of Crowds and... Um, actually, Douglas, would you read it for us? I've got it here. I'm sorry. It's, it's I, just perfect. This yeah. is by Judith Butler, you say? Judith Butler. She's, she's the... Uh, uh, Gender theorist at Berkeley, who uh, unbelievably highly cited. I'm not. I'm not citing an obscure figure here. She's extremely widely cited. Uh, it, it's her um, book, Gender Trouble, among others, that, that advocates this idea that that gender is about performativity. Anyhow, I say yes. Here's just one one um, one sentence from Judith Butler in full flow. I'll try to do it in one breath. I probably can't. The move from a structuralist account in which capital is understood to structure social relations in relatively homologous ways to a view of hegemony in which power relations are subject to repetition, convergence and rearticulation brought the question of temporality, temporality <laughs> into the thinking of structure and marked a shift from a form of Althusserian theory which takes structural tonalities as theoretical objects to one in which the insight into the contingent possibility of structure inaugurate a renewed concep conception of hegemony as bound up with the contingent sites and strategies of the rearticulation of power. <laughs> now, well done. Now, I would submit that that is a lie, <laughs> because yeah. if we agree that we're not the stupidest people in the world, we're relatively well educated and relatively well read, and and so on, then then we should be able to find such a sentence comprehensible, and it isn't. Mm. Now, this gets to one of the roots of all of this, which is. Why, you see, when I started looking at the intellectual roots of the intersectional movement, I was genuinely amazed. I assumed that there was a body of scholarship, serious scholarship, relatively unreadable scholarship. I, I, I assumed that in advance. This is from the American Academy, so it goes without saying. But I assumed that it would be some form of serious scholarship, and I was amazed to discover it's either things like this, or, as in the case of Peggy McIntosh, the author of one of the foundational texts of, texts of intersectionalism, merely a few pages of assertions. Mm. Yeah. Now, but here again is the thing. Th that's the problem for the American Academy, which has, goodness knows, a lot of problems. And in substantial uh, um, examples, should just be shut down. I mean, it has nothing to add. It has added nothing for a very long yeah. time. But that's not the interesting thing. The interesting thing is, why would these claims have had such an amazingly easy run across the culture? Mm. And I go back to this thing of the post-2008 thing. To some extent, the adults in the last 10 years in particular appear to have become so demoralized that they've given up mm. on certain things mm. or have sued for peace by saying, sure, we'll give you the intrinsic bias mm. training, for instance, mm. in major banks, energy companies, and much more. The implicit bias tests are rife, despite having already been basically disowned by two out of the three people who formed the first of the tests, who said, 
this wasn't meant to be used like this. Yeah, yeah. Why would all of these major corporations be, you know, you'd have thought that if you wanted to use the work of Judith Butler and the implicit bias test people and all these sort of things, you'd have thought you'd have liked to have seen it tried out successfully somewhere once. Yeah, yes. Before you decided to do it in every Western government and every major corporation, all the Fortune 500, you'd have thought you'd have tried, tried it out once. And all of this is being tried in company after company when it is demonstrably not going to work. Do you think there's a sort of way back from this? Well, there has to be, doesn't there? Hmm. Um, I'm determined to help us get out of this because several reasons. The first is that the part of it that's simply a political push has to be resisted. I think it's deeply immoral to be using people's, people of different skin colors as battering rams against each other for a political project. It's mm. sick. Mm. I think it's sick to be using uh, racial or sexual minorities in this manner for political ends. So that has to be stopped, identified and stopped. But there's also this aspect of it which because we, we've talked a bit about the, the deliberate aspect, that bit. But there is also this aspect of young people who are looking to understand the world, as we always have, and who are being offered this as an answer. Yep. Now, they are, I would submit, to put it no strongly, being invited to waste their lives. Mm. It's not the case that everything in life is centered around power. It's actually quite a moving part in the book at the end where you talk about the fact that leading an entirely political life, as you yes. might put it, is an unrewarding thing. Yes. And, and I think you, you t go off, basically find it. And, you know, when you talk about uh, what, what, what do people talk about, what do they value in life? It's not positions of power as right. such, but it's love and yes. it's things like this. Yes. Charity, love, forgiveness, yes. family, friends. Yes. Meaning. Yes. So if you, I'm, I'm among other things, as you, as you allude to at the end of the book, in the ways out of this, one of my suggestions is that we do exactly the opposite of what the age is inviting us to do and we depoliticize yeah, our lives. Yeah. Do not use every aspect of your life for political ends. But, but there's something more in this, which is that um, for young people starting out, and I know because I speak to people, I travel all around the world all the time, and I speak to an increasing number of young people who turn out for things and who have so much to offer in their lives. You know, they aren't just smart. They're smart and have access to more information than any of their forebears could have dreamt of. So why would they be wasting their time with this crap? Mm, mm, mm. Why would the best years of their thought be devoted to working out, for instance, and we haven't, we haven't yet talked about it yet, but the privilege game yeah, yeah. Why would they be spending their lives playing this unwinnable game of working out based on their sexual orientation, skin pigmentation, sex slash gender, and various other characteristics, where and when they are allowed to think, speak, and listen? Yeah, yeah. Why would they be doing that? Mm. But my invitation, among other things, is if we say, let's not play this game because it's unwinnable, why don't we try to work out what we should be doing? Mm, mm, mm. And 
to say to the next generation coming through it's not just don't play these unwinnable games but think of all the things you could be doing instead rather than this global lifelong invitation to naval gaze and then compare your navel with other people's navels Mm. and think that that's going to give you meaning or solve any of the many things we could do with solving isn't it encouraging, though, to you? That I mentioned at the at the, uh, at the beginning of the program. Also, you mentioned it there. You've been doing, taking part in some of these quite huge events. I mean, there was one at the O2, wasn't there, mm. recently? With uh, was it Jordan Peterson? I and think, Sam Harris. And yeah. Sam Harris. Um, this seems to me to be something that's quite new, um, where basically you are discussing issues such as this on stage in front of huge audiences. This is surely. Very encouraging. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by the whole thing. I'm encouraged by the next generation. Mm. Um, I think, I think they could do amazing things. I'll yeah. tell you, give you an example of why. Everywhere I go in the world, I've been pretty much in a different country every week in recent years, and um, I, everywhere I go, the young people I speak to are at exactly the same place in the debate. Really. Mm. Um, I was in Reykjavik a few weeks ago for Icelandic translation of my last book and uh, took the opportunity to look around a bit. And uh, in the street in Reykjavik, a a young guy comes up to me and says, oh, I know you from, and names various podcasts and so on. And uh, we get talking. That young guy was at exactly the same place in Reykjavik that young, smart people are in Washington, in LA, in London, in Bratislava, in all around the world. And so this, there's several things about this (laughs) that are interesting and very, um, very moving. One is the access to information, which in the first stages appeared to be hellish, is providing us with an answer. Right. It's connecting people yeah. in a way which we were told it would, but we hadn't quite foreseen some of the consequences of that. And that means that a smart young man or woman anywhere in the world can, if they have access to online, be at the forefront of the discussions of their age. Right. But then the second thing comes from that, which is, in that case, think of what you could do with your life. Think of the amount of things you could solve Mm. and address Mm. anywhere, anywhere. And so I want to take this wretched intersectional identity politics thing apart because I want young people in particular to spend as little time as possible enmeshed in these games. There's going to be another opportunity for them to come and and, uh, and and see you talking about this, isn't there, if they want to soon. You're going to be talking to I Lionel Schreier. That's right. Yeah. Um, when is that, Douglas? It's the 28th of October. Yeah. It's in London. Yeah. I much urge uh, uh, anyone who's in the vicinity of the continent to uh, uh, come. Uh, I, it's, yes, Lionel Schreiber and I are doing a, an evening together talking about these issues, among yes. others. Um, that's, uh, that's, uh, that event's put on by The Spectator. Right. Uh, it follows an event I did with Roger Scruton just before the summer. 
I wanted to actually, uh, before we end, just talk a bit about Roger Scruton, actually, mm. who uh, you were a huge champion of him. Mm. Well, he, was, he came on our program just after the whole thing had mm. happened. Um, in relation to what you're talking about here, mm. do you think the fact that he was reinstated was any form of say, victory or was that a, a sign that something might change? Because he had, you know, he was hugely uh, misrepresented, but he fell foul of all these various preoccupations, didn't he? Uh, because a young journalist called George Eaton lied mm. and thought that we live in an era in which you're allowed to lie and you get away with it. Mm. And I hate that. And it's not just that I admire and know Roger, been friends with him for almost 20 years, but that there's no way I was going to let them get him. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, the moment that Eaton and the New Statesman published these lies, uh, I decided to undo them, to expose them. I knew immediately it was a lie. The editor of the New Statesman, Jason Cowley, should have known immediately it was a lie. Mm. By the way, we live in such a deracinated media culture that 10 years ago, Johan Hari is found to be lying and even what was left of the independent then managed to realize he had to go. Mm-hmm. 10 years later, George Eaton, deputy editor of the New Statesman, lies, lies about the transcripts, lies about a philosopher, lies about a major public figure, lies to MPs, lies to the cabinet, and he's still at the New Statesman. Mm-hmm. So there's something so deracinated about the media culture as well that that's possible these days. And nobody thinks, apart from a small number of us perhaps, that it's reprehensible, Mm. utterly reprehensible that that should be possible. And uh, yes, I knew immediately that it was a lie. I I, I showed that, I I think I exposed it. And yes, and Roger uh, Scruton ended up getting his job back. But here's the thing, that trick that Eaton did could be done on anyone. Mm -hmm. And most people, do not have enough of a public profile to be able to have defenders. Most people aren't in the position of having people in the fortunate position that I am in, for instance, who can push back against that with the media platforms that we have. Most people, in fact, fear that. If there's a good thing about it, it's that, as Fraser Nelson said at the time, it was one of the first media pile-ons in which people ended up paying a price for joining in. Mm in that the MPs who joined in in trying to throw out Roger Scruton from polite society uh, all themselves paid a price Mm. uh, in the end because people didn't like it, they didn't admire them. In fact, they thought incredibly badly of them, those who joined in. Mm. So that's one thing. I mean, another is just that we also cannot live in a society this stupid. Mm. We can't. Andrew Gwynne, the Labour uh, frontbench spokesman who attacked Roger Scruton when he was initially appointed by the government last autumn, said in one of his public statements, <coughs> I mean, this is a man so dim, I'd be surprised if he'd finished any short book. And he says in a statement about Roger Scruton that somebody with Roger Scruton's views not just shouldn't have any public appointment, but sh- has no place in the modern world. Okay, Andrew Gwynne, where are we to go in future for information about Kant and Hegel? Mm. Are we going to come to the Labour front bench? (laughs) Are we going to be asking 
Diane Abbott and Andrew Gwynne and a few other geniuses if they can explain 19th century German thought to us. <laughs> but this is what so. we're being invited yeah, yeah. to agree to. Yeah. We're being invited to agree to a public square so stupid and deracinated that people who actually are thoughtful and have thought about things can be disappeared at the whim of an ignoramus, mm. or in the case of the new statesman, a liar. Mm. And I think that, quite frankly, a bit more civic courage is needed. A few more adults are needed. And we see this every single day. That's why I say that if, you, if I can condense what I'm trying to demonstrate in the madness of crowds, it is to say, we are as a society becoming stupider because we're pretending to know about things we don't know about. Mm. And we're pretending not to know about things everyone knew till yesterday. Right. Douglas, great summing up. Thank you very, very much. It, the book is actually called, as you said, The Madness of Crowds. It's out now. Uh, it's brilliant, so do read it. Douglas, thank you very, very much for coming in. It's a wonderful conversation. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Um, that's it. Do subscribe, won't you? And see you next time. Thank you.